Hello, this is Jada and Evelyn with another episode of Stories Behind the Scrubs. On this podcast, we interview medical professionals in order to get a better idea of what it is they do and why they do it. We also listen as they tell us their story, recounting how they chose to go into medicine. On today's episode of Stories Behind the Scrubs, we're going to be talking to Dr. Casey Patrick, one of the medical directors at Montgomery County Hospital District. Good evening, y'all. Hello. Hi there. How are you guys? Good. How are you? I'm good. So I'm Jada and this is Emlyn. I actually heard about you from the EFTA internship I'm doing with MCHD awesome. this summer. And so I talked a little bit about who you were and I thought it'd be really interesting to bring you onto our podcast. Um, and Emlyn agreed. So we decided we might as well just reach out and see if we could make anything happen. And we're really glad that we were able to. Thank you all for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. So usually we start off in high school since that's where we are right now. We're about to enter our senior year. And so we just kind of ask uh, about what your high school experience was like and what you were interested in since um, now you're obviously in a career in medicine, but is that what you thought you were going to do back when you were in high school? Oh my goodness. I'm not even going to tell you how long ago that was, uh, but I do have vague memories that I went to high school. Now I went to uh, high school in a very small public school in Southeastern Kentucky in a town called Williamsburg. I went to Williamsburg Independent School District, and we basically, uh, except for kindergarten, first grade through 12th grade, were in the same building. Uh, my high school class had, I want to say, 42 people in it. So really, really small school. Um, and at the time, there was no hospital in Williamsburg. There's not one there now. They were in, the, in neighboring cities. I didn't have a position in my family, or I don't have a position in my family. Um, necessarily, uh, not, not that I know of. Um, so I didn't really have an idea, honestly, the honest answer is I don't, I, I didn't know what, what being a physician meant. Uh, I wasn't, uh, there wasn't, you know, consultants, there wasn't, you know, the oil and gas industry like we have here in Houston that didn't exist in Southeastern Kentucky. There wasn't jobs in technology. Uh, so realistically, my choices were were much more limited just based on what was available in our proximity as opposed to what my my kids have here in greater Houston. So uh, that's just a way of me saying I, I, the honest answer was I wanted to uh, have a little more than my mom had. My mom was a school teacher and my mom raised me and my brother and we weren't poor by any means, but there was always a little bit of extra pressure when it came to vacation time or school shopping time, when it came time to go to college, you know, where, where the money was going to come from. And so I sensed that growing up and I said, you know, I'd like to overcome that. I'd like to have more to give my kids if possible. And I think that's what every parent wants in, in some, some way. So in our town, people that drove nice cars and went on nice vac- vacations were doctors or lawyers. That was really about it. And, when I was a junior in high school, I was present uh, for a, uh, uh, an assault that turned into uh, homicide. Um, and I got to be a witness in the trial. I knew both parties uh, fairly well. And not that that's a reflection of what being an attorney actually is, but I had no experience being an attorney either. So I went through this long process as a witness through this 
murder trial. And every time I was on the stand, every time that I was in the courtroom, every time that I was given a deposition or any of the pieces to the whole puzzle, it was fairly miserable. Now, that's a sliver of a sliver of a sliver of what being an attorney is. I know that now, but at the time that was my only case. And I said, no way, that's not what I want to do or not what I want to be a part of. I like science in general. You know, that was sort of the thing back back then. This is, you know, we're talking, you know, 25, 30 years ago. This would, you know, if you like science, you went into in medicine. And if you like, you know, more uh, English and history, you went, you went into uh, law school. So that was sort of the deal sealer for me. And I started out in undergrad as, as a biology uh, science major and went through that course as you go, four years of, of undergrad and MCAT between your junior and senior year of, of undergrad and then on to med school. Uh, and I got quite a ways down the line before I realized that I had gotten pretty lucky that I actually enjoy you know, what I do every day, but that's, that's probably what you'll get into as we go along. But that's the, the honest answer as to why I went into medicine was I wanted a little better lifestyle. I thought, Hey, I'm pretty good at science. And I had a pretty negative experience within the legal system. And so that's how I picked my direction. Not terribly well thought out, not based on a ton of real life experience, but it worked out for me. Definitely. A lot to unpack at once, and I think it's super interesting. Jade and I were actually just driving back from Tennessee looking at colleges, and as we drove through these rural towns, we kind of wondered the same thing. You know, there would be sparse houses here and there, but, you know, no real, real signs of, like, either hospitals or even something as small as a clinic. So we kind of had the same question in the back of our mind of maybe how someone in that area would become interested in medicine. So... I guess in a roundabout way, I mean, it's very interesting to hear on your part and that answered a question that uh, just came up in our lives too. Well, it's, it's probably worse today than it was when I was a, when I was a child, you know, the, the landscape of, of hospital care in America is contracted significantly. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but you can Google them out there. There's rural hospitals that close by the droves every year based on inability to stay open um, from an insurance collection standpoint, you know, just making ends meet. And that's, that's tough because a lot of those hospitals serve towns and locations in rural areas that, that don't have other points of access. In my hometown, we had probably, I'd say three or four primary care physicians. So there weren't a lot of specialists. There weren't neurosurgeons. There weren't orthopedic surgeons. There weren't you know, ear, nose, and throat surgeons. There, there wasn't an obstetrician or gynecologist in our hometown. So you had to go to the larger towns, half an hour, 45 minutes, even north an hour and 15 minutes to Lexington, Kentucky, or south an hour plus to Knoxville, Tennessee. That's where people went for real hospital care. And that's still the same today. There's no hospital in Williamsburg. One of the local rural hospitals has since closed, I believe. So there's a couple hospitals a half an hour, 45 minutes away um, that are small by what uh, we would term a hospital here in greater Houston. So realistically, I picked going into medicine based on things I had seen on TV uh, based on what my primary care physicians did um, and what I thought medicine was, but really it was probably mostly pop culture. If you think about things that were 
prevalent back in that time period. There were, you know, as, as we got further along into college and even into early med school, the TV show ER was a big deal. Anybody that's my age that doesn't reference ER that's an emergency physician is, I think, a liar. Most of us watched it, uh, whether or not that's where we, you know, decided we wanted to be uh, Dr. Carter or Dr. Green. Uh, you know, I watched the show. I liked it. I'm not, 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 uh, scared to admit that piece, but for, from being in a, in a town the size of Williamsburg, four or 5,000 people uh, max, uh, you really had to piece together what, what you thought being a physician was going to be. And honestly, looking back at it now and what I do today, I had no concept of any of these things, you know? So, I, like I said, I probably got pretty lucky liking it because it was all based on things I had conjured up in my mind based on pop culture and very, very small snippets of real life experiences. Absolutely. I think, I think we have a similar situation with our generation um, with the show Grey's Anatomy. I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard of it. (laughs) Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's, this is definitely the first time we've heard that answer. And we just wanted to begin the transition between, you know, this small town, small population, everyone knows each other kind of community where you went to high school to college. What would you say was the biggest difference between high school and college? Well, I, you know, college brought in strangers. I didn't really know strangers in in my little town. Everybody knew everybody. There wasn't a whole lot of people moving in or moving out. You can count the number of people that moved in and moved out on a hand or two. So when I got to college, it was definitely a time for learning about different folks, folks from other places, new folks, uh, like kind of cliche, but expanding your horizon. I had a lot of horizon to, to expand on because it was so narrow, you know, coming from such, such a small town. Now I have to qualify that by saying I went to college in my hometown. Uh, there's a small liberal arts school in Williamsburg, Kentucky called Cumberland College, or at least it was when I attended there. It's now the University of the Cumberlands. My mom was a teacher there. So I looked around and had big thoughts and big plans and big, big dreams and uh, decided in the, at the last minute to stay home. So it wasn't that drastic of a change for me from a geography standpoint, but definitely, you know, I made friends from Florida and friends from Georgia, uh, friends from Ohio, which doesn't sound like that big a deal in today's world with the internet and you know, my, my boys have friends in Germany and Sweden that they, you know, they game with. And so I didn't, we, we had pen pals, you know, that makes me sound ancient. Uh, but there, we didn't have as much access to people online uh, through the internet. It didn't exist then. So meeting people from other states, shockingly, when I was 18, 19, 20, was a big deal. Uh, obviously, academics, you know, went up in difficulty. So the, de- the degree of difficulty increased for sure. And just being out on your own and being responsible for a little bit more. It's not that my mom wasn't there for me and I was all totally out on my own. I did live on campus. I didn't live at home. I made it a point to try to not go home, to try to keep it a, a college experience. So there was a little more of laundry responsibility and car maintenance responsibility. And some of those things started to be passed on to me. So when you combine increased degree of difficulty, schoolwork, a little more life responsibility, it was a fairly reasonable progression 
towards adulthood um, and then preparing for med school and what that means as far as the application and acceptance. That was definitely a, an arduous process to say the least. Yeah. And those are all like very big differences, especially coming from such a small town high school and then, you know, just kind of entering um, that college feel. And these are all things that Emma and I have been considering as we have been starting our college searches um, since all that is coming up so soon, just trying to figure out what are things we need to consider when we're looking into what colleges we want to go to, class sizes and uh, academic rigor, all stuff like this. But we're also trying to think about what things can we take that we've learned from high school and apply those to college. So we'd like to ask you, what are some things that you found very similar to high school or maybe skills that you acquired in high school that you were able to use um, going on in college and med school and throughout your life now? There's some that I learned probably too late. Some I can look back on that I wish I had. Punctuality is a big one for me. Uh, I still struggle with it, but being on time is just something that anybody can work on and anybody can do if they make it a priority. And it's just can be an absolute deal breaker from a professionality standpoint. I know it sounds dated and archaic, but just being on time, you know, making 10 minutes early, you're on time, whether it's today when I'm coming into a shift uh, or when you're going to your 8 a.m. biology class, 101, first day of college. Uh, being 10 minutes early will always serve you well. And I can look back at mentors in my life and people that I've looked up to, people that have been successful, and none of those people are chronically late. None of those people blow in at 8.01.51. They're all early. And I say that with 100% insight into the fact that I have probably become marginally functional in my mid-40s. <laughs> So it's something that I still work on. I tend to get distracted and try to do five things on the way out the door and maybe six if I can squeeze the sixth one in when the most important thing is wherever it is I'm going. So those sort of habits, I feel like not overwhelming yourself when you have somewhere you need to be and making sure that you value the importance of being on time. It's something that doesn't cost anything. It's not mentally taxing. It's not... Uh, something that you can't do as a 17, 18, 19 year old person. And it's just a habit that will never serve you wrong. Um, kindness, kindness and, and empathy uh, to those who have less than us. It's something probably from my mother, but will never, ever serve you wrong. Remembering that never walked a mile in, in that other person's shoes is just invaluable. And to always think about their perspective first, as opposed to yours. It's really easy to put us first, our ego first, ourself first in situations. And it's always safer. It's always kinder. It's always easier to start with putting others and their situation, their perspective, their experience first. I think that's easy to do when we're 17, 27, 37, 47 if we just prioritize it, like being punctual. So I would say kindness, empathy, punctuality, or a couple that I, off the top of my head that we don't have to have a degree. We don't have to have, you know, physical chemistry lab and organic chemistry one and two to do those things. And those will serve us as college students, as med students, as young physicians, old physicians, whatever walk of life we choose to, to go down. 
those won't won't steer us wrong. I think that's great advice. And like you said, you don't need, you know, you don't need money. You don't need to be a genius. You don't need to have access to special resources to be punctual. You know, it's something that we all have control of. And like you had mentioned, it's those very little traits that can distinguish a professional from an amateur. Um, you had said that, you know, a lot of your either advisors or people that you look up to, they're punctual. And I, I think that could definitely, you know, help a lot of us today. So we really appreciate that. So while we're still in college, let's discuss how you began your transition from college to medical school, perhaps with your college major and how you started to prepare or take the MCAT. Boy, that's one I think I learned lessons on. I did fairly standard biology with a healthy dose of math, uh, physics, and chemistry, sort of as a combo minor. Uh, there was uh, different, different routes you could take. In my experience, you know, we're talking late 90s, early 2000s, not really late 90s, but I didn't know about things like physician's assistant school and, and nurse practitioners and uh, CRNAs, uh, other non-MD medical routes. So there weren't really all the choices back then that there are now. There, you could go to dental school, you go to pharmacy school, you go to medical school. That was kind of it. And at Cumberland at the time, the reason or one of the reasons why I chose Cumberland is I was scared of the big schools. I graduated with 42. And so to go to a, a Chem 101 or a Bio 101 with six or 700 students in a TA, I, I didn't know that I could navigate that. So one of the things I did know going into Cumberland, just from being around campus with mom and doing research like y'all will do, was that there was a fairly set pipeline of biology majors who had gone from Cumberland to University of Kentucky and the University of Louisville Medical Schools. At the time, there were only two in-state medical schools. So I tell people all the time, there's a time for trailblazing, but it's usually pretty rare. There's really no reason to blaze a trail if one exists to where you're going. So I found some upperclassmen who were going where I wanted to go and politely and on times and situations that were convenient for them, you know, pick the brain and said, what were the classes? Who were the teachers that got you the most ready that prepared you for the MCAT? What were the classes that you wouldn't take if you had it all to do over again and really tried to follow in other footsteps. So I can think of those folks now and remember, you know, how thankful I was for, for, you know, their, their graciousness with their time. And that's another, I guess, another quality as far as things you can take with you is trying to help those that are coming along behind you who want to do the same things that you did. It takes nothing to, to guide people along the path that you've already taken other than a little bit of time. So I would say following others is very important. The idea that you have to go through a science track, I know, I know that the times they are changing. Um, so a lot of folks nowadays don't necessarily go straight science. I enjoy biology. So it wasn't a drudge for me. I was, you know, chemistry, as I got into college, I enjoyed less. I really enjoyed physics. Uh, so there were some, some pieces of it that were enjoyable, but I would say if you could back away from all of that and make sure that you're in classes and you're learning things that stimulate you, because 
otherwise you're not going to retain anything anyways. And I went through med school and residency with enough people who did non-science majors who had very non-traditional backgrounds that the idea that you have to somehow go on this exact signpost and time post route is false. The, the, the smartest and most talented and one of the uh, most just personable and decent people in all of our med school class was a high school music teacher that got her prereqs at night and came back to med school with uh, kids at home and had been teaching music and piano the year before. Uh, so there's no one single way to do it. It really is about making sure that whatever it is you're doing in that moment that you're enjoying and you're taking something from, and you've got a general idea of the pathway that you want to go on. You still have to get your prereqs done somehow, but what your major is should be something that you enjoy. Something if you took a med school and a step afterwards out of the picture, you would still want that major. You would still enjoy those classes and enjoy that path. And if that happens to take you on to the next step, then great. But if not, at least you have something in your pocket that you enjoyed and something you're going to retain that will stay with you. And I didn't always do that. And so that's something that, that you know, for my kids who are potentially headed that direction, they've all heard that speech. Yeah, I think that's really important advice for us to hear, just being able to take a step back and kind of think about, you know, would we still want the major that we're going into if we didn't become doctors or go to medical school? Because I think a big part of our next few steps is trying to figure out what we want to major in and is it worth it if we don't continue all the way through medical school? Um, and so thank you for that advice. And then kind of transitioning into medical school, uh, did you end up going to one of the two medical schools nearby you? I did. I interviewed at several and from a cost benefit closest to family standpoint. I stayed in Kentucky and I went to med school at the University of Kentucky uh, College of Medicine that's in Lexington in central Kentucky. And it was, it was excellent. I mean, it was, you know, Lexington's a second home to me now. It was my first time in the hospital, my first time caring for patients. Some of those memories are seared as tightly into my brain is, is really anything. It was overwhelming. It was nerve wracking. It was all of those things added together. Amazing, terrifying, but uh, definitely uh, just a, an awesome four years, but it wasn't easy. And you know, hopefully things have changed somewhat. Definitely was still the time of, of over competitiveness and you know, kind of constant jockeying and really the only person that you should be competitive with and be jockeying with is yourself. That's easy for me to say now, uh, but at the time I didn't know what kind of physician I wanted to be at all. I went, I went through the entire buffet of, of specialties as I, as I progressed through med school, cause I had no idea. I'd never been in a hospital, uh, but you know, the, the, the structure of med school is such that the first two years are, or at least the structure at the time for me, I know this is changing and hopefully it, it continues to change, but is for the most part, the, the basic science classwork portion, anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, pathology, pharmacology, physiology. You know, it's the first and the second years or majority of it. And you do some 
know, physical exam basics and some medical ethics basics, but you really don't touch patients, or at least I didn't until my third year of medical school. So what amounts to, you know, 19th grade or so before you touch anyone uh, or really see illness, see sickness, see birth, see death, those pieces of the puzzle that can be so powerful and difficult for some people. Uh, so it got to that point. And then I realized, you know, I don't know really what I want to be and I don't have any way to know what I want to be. So your third and fourth year, you go through your rotations in the hospital and you get little bites and bits and pieces here and there of, of the big medical specialties. You do your internal medicine rounds, you do your family practice rotation, you do general surgery, uh, you do uh, neurology, you do uh, some intensive care unit or trauma surgery. Some folks do orthopedic surgery, but when you really start naming medical specialties and subspecialties, there's so many more than what exist in the number of months that you have through the third and fourth year of medical school. So what you come into contact and who you come into contact with in very short bursts can sway your needle as far as what direction you're pointing and what, what where you want to be so drastically. And it's so very random uh, because if you're on OB and you think OB is what you want to do and you're ready to be an obstetrician, gynecologist, and your upper level resident that month is a total jerk. It can absolutely turn you off to something that may have been right down your alley. And that's looking back, you realize the randomness that's involved in the choice. So there's so much that's out of your control during that time period sort of goes back to what I was saying about undergrad. And it's just really put yourself in positions where you're excited about what you're learning, where you're into what you're learning about and just make the most of that time you have in the present. One problem with going the med school route that I went is you're constantly looking ahead to the next steps. And sometimes that can pre prevent you from staying in the present and enjoying, you know, your time on your urology month. Even if you're not going to be a urologist, you have no desire to work with the genitourinary system, but you got cool people around you. You've got things to learn that may apply to your, life afterward they may not but it's it's really hard when you're constantly looking at the next application cycle the next interview the next year ahead to stay present and to learn in the present and i really wasn't very good at that at all so looking back i really wish i had taken those steps to stay present and even in the rotations where you don't think that's what you want to do at all i mean i went through all of them before i circled back to emergency medicine so you never know and lots of people switch, lots of people change, lots of people go go different directions, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. So just trying to stay in the present and be positive and, and continue to sort of sponge in that information, even if you don't think it's applicable to the, today, is a really good habit to have, I think. Wonderful advice. Kind of the point of this podcast, one of the things that we like to try and do is to get an idea of what it's going to look like you know, five years in the future, 10 years in the future, even just looking ahead at like um, next year and like college application cycles. But, you know, like you said, maybe it's more important to focus on what we're learning now. You know, if you're more focused in high school, you might realize that you like chemistry more. And then once you go to college, you're more, you're more confident in your major and that you'll stay interested in what you're doing because 
you were so sure of it while you're working on it in the present. So um, thank you for that. I, I, agree, I agree with that statement wholeheartedly. You have to be open to your, your heart and let your heart pull you with your mind. You can't separate the two. You still have to seek out those experiences to try to gain the knowledge for where you think you want to go next. But you have to let both of them act. You have to, you know, you can't just collect all this information and say, this is where I'm going to go, but not digest the steps along the way to say, is this really what I want to do? And you can't be lazy about checking your boxes. You know, you have to make A's and B's. You have to be decent to others. You have to have someone write a letter for you that says Jada is a great person and would love to work with her. To get that letter, you got to be decent. So you, it's a combination of what drives your heart and what you want to do. But the only way that you can file away those, those little files in your brain that says, you know, I like, I really like the operating room or I really like it in the ER in the hospital because I was a tech when I was an EMT in college. So you still have to seek out opportunities to broaden your horizons and gain experience, but you have to be willing to look at those and say, you know what, that really stunk. I didn't like that at all. That's not a waste. That's just something you can check off, but it takes both of those things and you have to continue to be diligent about having a plan. You just can't be so wrapped up in your plan that it becomes set in stone because that's when you end up burnt out. Yeah. And I guess, again, we could apply that to where we're currently at in our life cycle, where we're, like I had mentioned earlier, looking at schools and many people have like this preconditioned idea of, I want to go to this school and pursue this degree. But um, I think I had mentioned earlier, we just got back from Tennessee and looking at a couple of schools there and the school, um, specifically Vanderbilt, that I had built up in my head is like, I would love to go here. Um, and I had focused, you know, very strongly on that alone. But then when I got there and visited and toured and learned more about the school itself, I had changed my mind. So even though I went home and said, you know, I didn't gain any new like colleges that I would like to add to my list. I think it was still like, I still had a net positive experience. So before we move into our most specific track yet, talking about um, emergency medicine, and you know what you're currently working on. Many people describe medical school as um, sometimes the hardest four years of their life. And I think that you'd mentioned that, that it was both wonderful, but it was also nerve wracking and that it wasn't easy necessarily. So we just wanted to ask, how did you manage your stress and how did you um, find a way to work with work time into your schedule to balance school and having a life, I guess? Honest answer to that, I probably had some good habits and some bad habits. Uh, realistically, exercise is key. I played a ton of racquetball in med school. I'd never played racquetball before. And they built a new, it's not new now, but they built a new campus rec center for the University of Kentucky that was the whole campuses, one street across from where the medical school building was. So we had access to the weight room the gym, the racquetball courts. And one of my best friends from med school said, let's go play racquetball. I said, I have no idea how to play racquetball. I don't never played before in my life. You bang ball against the wall in a room that's enclosed. Old men play it with headbands on. And it is quite uh, the exercise. It is definitely one that you can 
be soaking wet with sweat pretty quick. And it's not all about the power. There's some nuance with angles and positioning. So I got to where I was probably a almost novice racquetball player after the first four years. I definitely am not very good, but that was my exercise of choice. I used the gym, lifted some weights. I was still lifting some weights at the time. And, and so exercise definitely is, is a must. And that exercise doesn't have to be triathlete or, or marathon runner or Olympic weightlifter or CrossFitter, just something to where you're keeping your cardiovascular health in order and you're getting some sunshine, getting outside and from stress to sleep to, you know, knowledge retention, all those things benefit from regular exercise. So that's one I would say on the plus side, on the negative side, everybody will say it. I unfortunately probably lived it a little too much, but it's really easy to fall into a track of trap of, of drinking alcohol too heavily as, as a stress release. And that's something that's, plagued me honestly for uh through med school residency and really out into my career um then I've been able to definitely get a handle on but I've seen it in my, both myself and and countless colleagues I know that that's probably not the the uh, happy and uplifting subject that we want to shine a light on but I think it's important to mention that as you're transitioning you know from an 18 year old to a 21 year old to a 24, 25, 26-year-old in, in med school, there's plenty of opportunity to, to party and have fun. And in moderation, that's totally appropriate. You're accomplishing big goals and reaching huge life milestones. Everyone should be able to, to release and to gather together and to celebrate and share emotion and, and do all those things, however it is that you like to do that, whether it's dance, drink, party till the sun comes up, whatever it is, but it just needs to be a moderation. And when it, when it becomes a crutch and when it becomes something that's more than every now and again, that's when it becomes troublesome. So I've seen it in too many of my colleagues. I've seen it in myself. It's something definitely to watch for as you progress through your uh, you know, undergrad med school residency career. Yeah, I mean, you've been giving um, really amazing advice so far, and this is, it's it's different than the advice we've heard before, because it's more honest, and it's more, um, I guess, in a sense, like, vulnerable, telling us exactly, you know, just kind of being blunt about it, and saying this is kind of what happens, and this is the stuff you have to watch out for, um, but then also giving us advice that tells us this is like exercising, um, finding something that you enjoy doing on the side, just to kind of keep yourself from falling into those deeper, darker pits while you're going through some of the most stressful schooling experiences probably of your life. But kind of transitioning from, you know, the stresses of medical school into the stresses of work life. Um, you talked a lot about how the people that you're with or the environment that you're in influences your decisions in what you want to end up doing for the rest of your life. So how did you get into emergency medicine and what drew you to that field? Well, I would say, you know, from an emergency medicine standpoint, it was almost another stroke of luck. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I got into my fourth year. I spent some time as a surgeon. I really thought I wanted to go back home and be a family practice hometown doc. And I went and spent some time with one of the docs near my hometown and he had zero privacy and 
was he had to go out to eat 50 miles away so he wouldn't be mobbed by his patients and just it really didn't seem to be terribly family friendly and i had as my my family was approaching uh being on the way i didn't really want to go back to small town kentucky so i i spent some time looking at a research route and a phd and i really never had a clear direction and it got to middle of my fourth year and my advisor said, you, you got to pick something. You, you, you have to go to residency. You have to pick and think about the, the places in the hospital where you're the happiest. Think about the things in medicine that make you happy. Are there patients that you really want to take care of and you don't want to miss out on? Are there patients you don't want to take care of at all? Because if so, you know, X those out or there places in the hospital you don't want to be at all. And so I sat down and really tried to back away from myself as much as possible. And I said, you know, I didn't like the operating room at the time. And I said, I, I don't, I don't like the operating room. I liked the first 15 or 20 minutes, but when we get into hour two and hour three, I lose my focus. I don't feel like this is the place where I'll be most successful. I really liked all patients. I didn't have a group of patients that I thought, eh, I don't really want to take care of kids. I like taking care of kids. I like taking care of geriatric patients. So there wasn't a, an age gap or a, a, a gender gap in, in patients that I wanted to take care of. And then I just thought about situations and I, it was just this really corny, but it's the honest answer to the question. I, I really didn't want to be afraid of a sick patient. I didn't want to be on an airplane with a patient in cardiac arrest and then call for the doctor on the overhead speaker and me be paralyzed to get up and go help. So I said, all right, I like all the patients. I don't really like the operating room. I don't really want a clinic. I don't want to know what's coming next. And I want to be able to take care of sick patients. And it left me emergency medicine. Really, I, I did a little bit of anesthesia versus emergency medicine, but I really didn't want to be in the operating room. So it really pushed, pushed me into emergency medicine. Uh, thankfully, I, I, I guess I didn't really know what I was getting into. I did one emergency medicine month in medical school. A lot of folks travel and do extra months. I decided too late for me to be able to do that. So I only had one emergency medicine true med school month under my belt when I made the decision to do it uh, for residency. So uh, I wouldn't advise going that route if I had it to do over, but that's, that's how I took the path. That's great. And once you decided, once you made that final decision, you know, I'm going to into emergency medicine. Um, I guess you started your residency. And while you were in residency, what kind of training, like specifically what kind of training was involved? And what skills from training did you think were the most important to learn specifically for your position? So within emergency medicine, we have to be, some folks like to say, uh, jack of all trades, master of none. I don't think that's 100% true. There are some things that we are the masters of. But it is true somewhat in the sense that we have to spend time with cardiologists, not to do cardiac catheterizations, but to take care of post-cardiac emergency patients so we know what happens next, to review EKGs, for example, with cardiologists, because we take care of cardiac emergencies. We don't take care of them in the hospital on day two, four, six, eight, or 10, but we take care of them in minute two, four, six, eight, or 10. So we, we spend 
time with the surgeons, not because we do operations, but because we take care of the surgical emergencies when they present in the emergency department, whether that's trauma emergencies or non-traumatic emergencies like a ruptured gallbladder or a ruptured appendix. So we spend time in the intensive care units, not because we are intensivists, but because we admit a lot of patients to the intensive care unit and we're responsible for stabilizing those patients in the emergency department before they go to the intensive care unit. So some of the ICU months, some of the trauma surgery months, those are the, the, the biggest and the baddest as far as the high stress goes in medical school. But there are other months in, in, the, in, the, in the pediatric ICU that, are, that can be very, very harrowing. Uh, dealing with psychiatric emergencies can be, can be really tough on your mental health, on the, on the caregiver. So there's lots of other, what we call in, in residency, the term is off service. So you're not in your residency, you're not, I shouldn't say you're still in your residency, but you're not in your emergency department, you're off service learning from other specialists. And then as you progress through year one, year two, year three, some emergency medicine residencies are four years. As you progress along, you do less off service months and start to narrow it back down into really just working in the emergency department. But before you can manage an emergency department, you have to know how the rest of the hospital works and you have to have a lot of that subspecialist knowledge integrated into your emergency medicine knowledge so you can manage the ER. So that's that's sort of how the progression works. And there's variability there, just like in med school, for you to do some of the rotations are required. Some of those you can pick the things that you enjoy and move towards, you know, your third year or my third year, my last year of emergency medicine. I can't remember. I think nine or 10 of the months were all in the ER with you as a third year resident really managing the department with obviously staff uh, attending the, the boss's backup. Um, so that was definitely, uh, you know, people say resident or med school is bad. Residency was definitely uh, more challenging from a time standpoint, from a patient care acuity standpoint. Med school seemed bad. And we got to residency, you're like, oh man, this is this is serious business. Now they call me doctor and they ask me what I want to do. In med school, it's more clearing a big hurdle to get to residency, but really residency is your first taste of actual patient care responsibility. And that's a big, that's a big leap when somebody says doctor, and I'm standing there and they say doctor. And I turn my head and I'm like, oh, they're talking to me. And that happened to me several times over the first few months. Like I'm actually, I actually am one. And they want to know what I want to do to the patient. Holy cow. Uh, so that was stressful to say the least, but an amazing feeling to, you know, finally hear somebody call you that. You're like, oh yeah, that's me. My coat's longer now. You wear a nice short coat in med school. When you go to residency, you get the long coat. And I know that there's, uh, I think movement probably away from that designation that was the case when I was in. So that was the way, that was the way it worked. And so it was definitely a, a big step to going from zero responsibility as a med student beyond just your learning to actually having patient care decision-making capacity as a resident. Yeah. Well, that's definitely a big leap going from being the medical student who doesn't really um, have any responsibility to becoming the resident who is now a doctor and has all the responsibility. Um, but then even after that, you're now one of two doctors working for Montgomery County Hospital District. And I've, I'm still not entirely sure what that entails. 
and maybe you can explain that a little more, but I know at least when I first came into the internship uh, with MCHD, I heard about how they had MD1 and MD2. And it was just, I never really thought about how a place with EMTs and paramedics would require medical doctors to tell them what they're allowed to do or place boundaries on how far they can go in medical treatment um, or even figure out uh, how to respond to the 911 calls and how to deal with um, each of the medical situations that arise in person and over the phone. So can you just explain a little bit more about what medical doctors do when they work for a system like this? Sure. And kind of how you came into it, really. So I'll take the first part first and how I, how I came into it second. So most, most EMS physicians, emergency medical system physicians that work with paramedics and EMTs are emergency physicians. So um, I am uh, fellowship and double boarded, uh, fellowship trained and double boarded in, in EMS medicine like emergency medicine. So it was an extra uh, year plus after residency and a second uh, examination process uh, to become boarded in EMS medicine. Not everybody that works with ambulance uh, systems with uh, EMTs and paramedics is double boarded, but most of the larger systems uh, have at least one um, double boarded or fellowship trained EMS doctor. And so this, this, Fellowship training and uh, the board exam for EMS medicine focuses not just on running an emergency department, which is what I have to worry about when I take my EMS, my emergency medicine boards. It's more focused on all of the different caveats and the other situations that can exist as an EMS physician, which is uh, quite a bit different than an emergency department. I will say I am not a paramedic. I never was a paramedic. So I don't do their job and I don't really tell them how to do their job per se. Our role as medical directors is primarily clinical. So in other words, I'm not out buying the ambulance chassis or the radios that the paramedics use or telling them how their uniforms should be worn. Uh, What we set are the clinical protocols. So we set the protocols that allow the paramedics to give certain medications to a chest pain patient, aspirin, for example, the dose, the amount, when they can give it, all those protocols are set by the medical directors. Now, in different states, this can vary. Some states, the protocols are state-based. So in other words, every paramedic in the state works under a single protocol system. In Texas, it's a little different. Uh, Paramedics work under what's called delegated practice which means they actually practice under my license or Dr. Dixon's license. So we don't have to go to the state EMS board to ask for permission to add a new medication, for example. But paramedics practice what's called protocolized medicine. So they can only give medications in certain situations based on certain complaints. So they can't, if I think, medicine X would work for this condition based on a recent journal article or a view that I read and say, you know what, this is off label, but this is showing quite a bit of promise. As a physician, I can do that. I take the the risk on to myself. Uh, The paramedics can't do that. They have to practice within their protocols. So they couldn't say, you know what, I know that we have dexamethasone, a steroid on the truck. 
And I just read about steroids working really well for migraine headaches. And I think this is a migraine headache. So I'm going to give this patient a, a shot of dexamethasone. If it's not in the protocol, they can't do it. So realistically, the primary role of the EMS medical director is to set those protocols and to say what medicines the paramedics can give for what condition, in what dose, in what frequency. And then the bigger job of, of the EMS physician, in my opinion, is to have oversight over the clinical care in the system. In other words, you set these protocols. How are the paramedics doing? How are the patients doing? Are the patients responding well to the treatment? Are the paramedics completing the treatment accurately and appropriately? So you want to monitor how your protocols work, how the accurate the paramedics are in completing the protocols and, and adhering to them. And then after you put the protocols into the place, how do the patients do? Do you have good outcomes in your cardiac arrest patients? How many of them walk out of the hospital alive? Do you have good outcomes in your uh, very sick hemorrhagic shock trauma patients? Uh, do they all bleed to death in the emergency department or do you have survivors that come uh, from that group of patients? Are there things that you can change in your protocols potentially to improve patient outcomes? So realistically, it all goes back for us as the medical directors to the patient. And how can we best care for the patients in the district? How can we make our protocols fit the patients most appropriately? How can we make sure that our paramedics are adhering to those? And also so that the protocols are beneficial for the medics too. So they feel a sense of job satisfaction, a sense of ownership. And so they're happy and fulfilled doing their job each and every day. So really we, we focus very much so on the patient and the medic to make sure that there's a, uh, a good mesh there so that both parties are satisfied. Both parties have, have good outcomes when it comes to both job satisfaction and clinical uh, outcomes. So that's really what the medical director of an EMS system is in my mind supposed to do. There's lots of variability there. In some systems you have helicopters. And so there may be specific care paid to, you know, helicopter EMS protocols. We do a lot of education at MCHD, both Dr. Dixon and I. So when we put a new protocol in place, we pride ourselves in being very involved in the education and the rollout of those protocols. Uh, we like to do bedside teaching both, you know, in the administration building and also in the field. And Dr. Dixon does a little more field work than I do. So he may show up to a scene and just stand off to the side and watch the paramedics work and then give them feedback after, after the call. Uh, so that's, that's really some of the major pieces of an EMS medical director's day. And then we, you know, we call the medics in, we review runs with them. We review their charts. We review lots and lots and lots of charts and look for good, look for bad, look for ways that we can improve as a system, look, look for ways that the medics can improve. That really is very interesting. Um, I'm not following the same internship that Jade is doing, but honestly, I had no idea that there was so much um, responsibility involved in this um, chain of command here. Uh, so what we wanted to ask you, so we have our final question lined up. But before we hit that final question, I just wanted to ask um, how an emergency medical doctor um, tends to their mental health. So some of the things that you've mentioned and that I've um, picked up on from this interview is like you said, you didn't want to go into the clinic because you, um, you, you didn't want to know what to expect every day. 
And because of that very nature, you're never going to know what comes into the emergency department and therefore you can't prepare for it. Furthermore, um, just because of sometimes the severity of these situations and the short acting that you would have to do, there might be a higher mortality rate. So how, as a physician in this um, position, do you manage your mental health and stay engaged in your field? It's really hard and becoming more and more evident that, that, you know, especially the paramedics, they have really just a large load of, of death and disability that they carry with them. And so some of the same things we've already talked about are talked about are absolutely key. Very simply, you know, not relying heavily on alcohol, prioritizing exercise, um, you know, making sure that your social system and your social structure that you set up around yourself is supportive and you have folks that you can talk to and whether that's, you know, your family, your friends, your coworkers, or professionally, you know, and having, having, having a therapist that you talk to um, periodically to help you work through uh, some of these things. These are all items that 20 years ago, people would have rolled their eyes and said, you know, kind of suck it up. It's part of what we do. And yes, it is part of what we do, but it does build and you have to have healthy ways to, to let it out. And it can't be, it can't be alcohol. It can't be substance. It can't be, you know, uh, food. You have to maintain a healthy weight, healthy sleep schedule, healthy exercise schedule. All those things are really, really vital to making sure, you know, that you don't get overwhelmed by some of the things that that we see on a day-to-day basis. When I'm asked this question, I get asked it a lot, you know, how do you deal with it? I don't, I get, I guess I just, at some point, I don't remember having the, having the thought, but somebody has to stand there in the doorway of the hospital and accept the ambulance. Somebody has to stand there and be that physician. And a long time ago, I decided that was going to be me. And so that's just what I've adapted to. And somebody signs up to be the in-charge paramedic on medic 13 tonight here in Montgomery County. And their job is to answer that 911 call doesn't necessarily make it easier or harder. It's just something that we signed up to do. And if, if I don't do it, somebody else will be there. So I have to figure out a way for me, myself to to be ready to go. Um, The other piece is to really, really, really value your team. And in emergency medicine, oftentimes it can be really easy as a practicing community emergency doctor uh, in emergency rooms across America, a lot of places have one emergency doctor on at a time. That's not the way it is in training. You have all your residents and your attending staff around and there's uh, co-residents and uh, surgery residents and medicine residents and all of these people that are, that are, you have all this group to share all of this joy and pain with. And as an emergency doc, when you get out into the world, there's more jobs than not that have a single doctor on for eight or 10 hours. And you, your partner comes in, you pass like two ships in the night, and then you go home and you really don't have anyone to talk to. Uh, so one of the reasons why I really gravitated towards EMS medicine and working with the medics is it gives me back a team, a team to work with. And so I have my office team with Dr. Dixon and, and the crew at MCHD. You probably met 
and worked with Lee Gillum and your scheduling, Jada. Lee's part of my team and has been part of my team now for uh, going on seven years. And so having a team structure like, like we have in EMS is really important to me because it allows me to share the joys, the twin births, the cardiac arrest saves, the trauma saves, and the really awful that we see the drownings and the gunshot wounds and the suicides and all those things that are just really awful. You have a team there. So I think part of it is your own internal habits, exercise, sleep, diet, really, really important, avoiding excessive substance. And then the other piece that is just vital for any, but I don't know that it's just medicine, but for me, when I was able to get back into EMS and really get a team of people that I felt like we were all rowing the boat in the same direction. And, you know, at MCHD, it's just such an amazing group and they're public servants. They're there for the public of, uh, of Montgomery County, the 911 callers. And that's really what every day is focused on is when someone calls 911 in this County, how can we be better at caring for them? Whether that's critical illness and intensive care unit style care, or whether that's, helping someone in a time of need, you know, in a mental health crisis or in a situation of abuse or human trafficking or whatever it is, you know, the, the medics that are out there just really are out there for the patients. And to be a part of that group, I just feel lucky to be part of the team. And that's really helped me immensely from a mental health standpoint, mid-career, you know, because we go in ebbs and flows um, with our mental health throughout, whether it's high school, college, med school, residency, out in the world. And part of that is looking back in the rearview mirror and saying, what things have helped me along the way? What things have hurt me along the way? And how can I remove the bad and accentuate and keep the good? And having a team, and I'm lucky to have my team at MCHD. They're just, just the best group of people I probably ever worked with. It's just really, really helpful for me from a mental health standpoint to know that they're sharing in that. And I have people I can go talk to and, you know, that are experiencing the same thing and getting up in the morning and, you know, trying to, trying to do it another day. So I would, I would say to be honest with yourself with what works and to also be really honest with yourself about what doesn't work and try to try to weed that out of the garden, so to speak. Yeah. I think um, having a team or having someone uh, or a group of people that you could talk to is definitely one of the most important parts um, to dealing with mental health. And uh, the members of your team that I've met at uh, MCHD so far, it's just, it's absolutely amazing out in the field and up in alarm. It's just like a large family. Um, but uh, this last question is something that we like to ask all of our guests. Um, you've already hit a lot on like some of the specialty stuff that you do um, in your job, but this is just uh, to get an idea of what a very basic regular day is like in the life of um of an emergency medicine doctor i have to answer that two ways if i'm if i'm going on shift in the hospital then generally i work 10 hour shifts so if i go on shift i typically work evenings and nights so for instance uh not well later on this week i start uh, a run of night shifts so i'll work four night shifts in a row I'll go in at either 10 or 11 and leave at 7 or 8. So 10 or 11 p.m., leave at 7 or 8 a.m. And I'll be responsible. Most times you're responsible between somewhere around 10 
10 beds plus or minus, and then whatever is out in the waiting room is really yours as well. So there'll be where I'm working this week, there'll be two of us on overnight taking care of about 20, what amounts to about 25 beds. Um, and we get everything that comes through the door. So strokes, traumas, heart attacks, belly pain, headache, stub my toe, cut my arm. And the way that the emergency department works in America is that if you come in to be seen, we see you. Uh, we're, we don't turn folks away in the ER. So we see everybody, uh, young, old, rich, poor, uh, black, white. And that's what I love about the job is because I take care of anybody, no matter where they come from, what they look like, uh, whether they can pay me in diamonds or whether they can uh, pay me in crumbs, it doesn't matter. We take care of them. So that's, that's my normal ER shift. I like, I like reading EKGs. I like dealing with orthopedic complaints a lot. I like to put splints on. I like to reduce fractures and reduce dislocated uh, bones like dislocated shoulder, dislocated elbow, hips. Those are gratifying to me because the patient has an abnormality that is causing them significant pain and immobility. And through various methods of pain control and sedation, I can put the bone back into place, whether it's the fracture or the dislocation. I really like, like that feeling even this long into it quite a bit because the patient feels better when they go home. And that's really an immediate gratification for, for me, the physician. From an emergency uh, medicine services from an EMS physician standpoint, those days are wildly variable. Uh, Mondays are always the busiest in EMS oversight because you have the weekend to catch up from. So all the calls over the weekend, when we get back into the office tomorrow, uh, the cardiac coordinators and the trauma coordinators and all of the quality folks who read all the charts, the doctors read some charts, but we have folks in the office that read a lot more than we do. They come to us with, hey, doc, we had a, a patient that we intubated and uh, we didn't give the right amount of sedative. Let's look at this chart. And so we do, we'll sit down and spend 15 minutes looking at the chart together and, and discussing it. We have our main command staff meeting at 10 a.m. on Monday. So that's when the CEO and the heads of each department sit together around a table and talk about what the goals are from the week, old business and new business. Uh, we have a weekly quality meeting on Mondays where just the quality team, that's the group of people that look at clinical quality of care, where we get together and look at the charts and say, what happened last week? Here's the good. Here's the bad. And every month we look at trending data. So we look at cardiac arrest survival and we look at our accuracy when we intubate patients. We look at our accuracy in new protocols, how much um, variation did we have in, in treatment compliance with certain protocols. And then we look at specific medics who may be doing really well or medics who may need some remediation. And we discuss our plans for them. And then lastly, as you've seen at MCHD, it's a very tiered system. So there are a lot of steps for the medics to climb from a new employee to one of the, the chiefs or even the district chiefs. Um, so even deputy chiefs, even, so we really focus a lot in the education side of medical direction on how we can help those people that are climbing those steps, uh, succeed and how we can, whether that's specialized review, uh, whether that's, uh, scenario practice, simulation training, we have, uh, 
we have our podcast at MCHD that we record. I do this on the other side sometimes. Uh, unwillingly, at times, it became sort of an accidental uh, success. We really wanted a way that we could educate our medics where they didn't have to come into the main office. Montgomery County is 1,100 square miles. It's like the size of Connecticut. So we have medics that live hours apart and hours from administration. And we were holding lectures, old school, come sit in a chair lectures. This was back in 2016, 2017. And the same 12 medics came every month after month after month. And finally, I walked into the clinical chief's office and I said, hey, this is not really a great use of money. I don't know what we're doing here, but no one's showing up. And he's like, I don't know what to do. I'm like, I don't either. This is frustrating. And I got in the car and turned on one of my medical podcasts when I was driving home. And it hit me. Of course, they're not coming. It's their day off. How can we reach them in a more technologically advanced, more current way? And so we developed the MCHD paramedic podcast. And that's sort of been my focus as the as the educator, uh, the clinical educator from the doc side. That was what Dr. Dixon tasked me with. And so that's what we came up with. And we're uh, over three years in now, and we've had 130 some episodes, and uh, we get a lot of a lot of discussion in the office, in the field. It really has been an, uh, an excellent addition to our clinical department. And so generally, my day would consist of recording a couple podcasts, listening to a couple podcasts, making sure that we're ready. We release every two weeks. So I don't do the editing. Uh, we have a, a wonderful audio file, audio expert in our office named Andy Adams, and he does all the hard work, but I make sure that they're ready to go and, and at least proofed and listened to. I, I write most of the episodes and host most of the episodes. So I do the on-air work, Andy does the off-air work, and we get everything together and we've not missed a release now in, in three years or so. So it's a looking back, it wasn't something I thought would work, Necessarily, I was very nervous about it, and I wasn't sure that I could do it. Uh, but that's been a big piece to try to get education to medics across 1,100 square miles, across a giant uh, county in Texas, where we've got 300 paramedics and however many stations, 20-plus stations with 30-plus ambulances on the road all the time. It's not like everybody can come sit down in the morning and talk very easily. So this is a way for the medical directors to talk to the medics across all those miles. So that's that's a, a window into my emergency medicine day, I guess, and my EMS day. Somebody may call me here any any time with a with a difficult uh, patient that wants to refuse care or a patient who's critically ill that they need guidance on. So really my phone never turns off. But like I said before, when it's with a, such an awesome team, I don't ever mind to take take my people's phone calls. I, I love I love the medics. I love the service. I love to be able to try to give, give back to the county a little bit. Absolutely. Um, first of all, I had no idea that there was a podcast involved. How relevant is that? Um, yeah. Yeah. There is. And second of all, I like that you kept the um, this theme of like family and like kind of the camaraderie that you had talked about earlier within your team. Um, a lot of the things that were involved in the day of your life sounded like it was both for the bettering of the patients and for the bettering of the um, care team, which I guess indirectly is also for the bettering of the care of the patients. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And so 
now that we've answered that, I believe that concludes our interview, but we just wanted to thank you for um, taking the time this evening just to share your story and some of your advice. Um, I'd say you, you answered both our like direct questions, but also provided us like further insight into um, just balancing the pursuit of medicine and keeping touch with your own health, which is something that um, I think is really easy to forget when you either get like caught up in your studies or you're looking further ahead than you need to be. Um, yeah, and lastly, just thank you for your advice on becoming a better and more empathetic professional, you know, no matter the stage that you're in, whether it's a high schooler like us or an attending position like you. So thank you. Yeah, that empathy, that empathy will never serve you wrong. Um, if, if you're doing emergency medicine to cash a check, you'll be miserable. I see too many of my partners that have come through this entire process that we discussed and they let the good that they do somehow burn out or fall away, or they found themselves in situations where they were working too much to pay too many bills, you know, overspending is huge, um, left their means and then had to work and work and work. And if you're just working for a paycheck and you're not, you know, the patient's not first, you will absolutely be burnt to a crisp and it will, you won't be happy. And when you're not happy, you're not a good caregiver. And so that's really something to keep in mind. You know, it's not, it's not an easy gig. Um, but when I think about what I get to do every day and, uh, you know, the chance to make a difference and it's not always in the big bad traumas and the cardiac arrest. Sometimes it's just somebody you can be kind to, you know, grab a sandwich for or a blanket for things like that it can go a big, you know, a long way in making a difference in some folks day because we really see people at their worst and that's the worst of society, you know, and that's a whole other topic for a whole other day about why we're there. Uh, but we are, and we're in the spot to see it. Um, and so if all you're doing is trying to collect a check, seeing some of those just awful things and awful situations people are in, there's no other option than, than unhappiness. So it has to be more than that. So that's why your team, and the patient focusing on both of those at the same time. Um, to me, that's what helps prevent that. Or it has for me in times where I veered into the, you know, I'm just here to, to cash a check uh, portions of my career. And I've had those. Um, I find myself getting really unhappy really quickly. So I think that's something you can take with you forever. Um, and medicine's tough because I was taught about altruism and the idea that medicine was, you know, for the greater good. and. Eh, it can be at times, but it's also a business in this country. And so you have to figure out where you fit within that model and where you can try to do your best for people. Um, and that's always a bit of a moving target. And that's one of the reasons why I was drawn back to MCHD and EMS is because it's still sort of in that public service line of, of uh, we're here for the patient's period, no matter what. And those situations for me have always been the most fulfilling when it starts to get into trying to count the, pennies and nickels and dimes, I get unhappy pretty quick. So that's not everybody. Some people out there can absolutely run their, run their, you know, dermatology office business and be perfectly happy. That wasn't, that wasn't for me. So uh, you guys are way ahead of the game, even thinking about these questions and thinking about how to, uh, how to ask them your uh, following paths of others. And I would say that's the uh, most of my best steps and best moves have been following people who are going where I want to go and doing what I want to do. The, the big piece of that puzzle though, is make sure they're going where you want to go and they're being 
also the kind of people that you want to be. It's super important because you are who you surround yourself with. And if they got to where they where you want to be, but they're unkind or they're uh, cutthroat or they're, uh, you know, both, then you probably don't want to follow their path. You know, you want it to be people who, who you want to be what they are and you want it to be like they are both. So I think you guys are, you guys are doing it. There's no doubt. I went to Vandy, uh, or I interviewed for Vandy for undergrad, really wanted to go there. We couldn't afford it. And then I interviewed there for residency. So it may come back around. Don't, don't, uh, don't sell it off yet. But when I interviewed there for residency, we have dinners the night before your interview. It's kind of a standard thing. And none of the residents showed up for the dinner that night. I think it must have been miscommunication or something, but it kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. I was like, you know what? I'm good. Um, so I didn't, I didn't rank it very high on my list, uh, but I know a couple of people who graduated or who emergency medicine docs that graduated there who are, you know, just total, total, just great doctors. So, and Nashville's cool. So you can mark it off for undergrad, but they've got a good emergency medicine program. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much. Um, we had a really great time and it was really great to hear everything, all your advice, um, what you came from, what you've become. And, um, it's just been overall a really great episode. So thank you so much. Awesome. Th- thank you all. How much more do you have? What, I, which I get confused at all the internships and all the people coming and going. What do you have left? I have one are more. Are you finished? I have one more in the field. So 12 hours. One more in the field. Yeah. When is, when, when's your, when is that? It should up? be the 15th or the 16th. Yeah. Coming up. Well, I hope, I hope it's been enjoyable. It is, like I said, it's my favorite group of people I've ever worked with. So. Yeah, it's been really um, great. And it's something I definitely am looking into and thinking about doing. So. And then you guys are both seniors upcoming. That's right. See, both of you guys have me convinced. Maybe, maybe I'm looking in the wrong places. Maybe emergency medicine is really where it's at. Yeah, it is, uh, it's not bad. It's not a bad gig. It's, you know, there's, I've changed careers five times in emergency medicine. One of my favorite things about it is I've done a lot of stuff and, and I've been finished now for about 15 years and I've already done a bunch of things. My daughter is going to, uh, is going to college here. Uh, we're going to orientation next week and then she goes for good in August. So she just finished EMT school um, or is finishing EMT school this summer. Um, so I semi forced her to do that. Not really, but I told her it's the quickest way to get to take care of patients. And so that's what she says she wants to do. And I want her to have more knowledge under her belt. Cause I got, I said, I got lucky. Uh, she's going to know what it's like to see someone sick before I didn't see anybody sick till third year of med school. Um, so I was so far down the line before I had any idea what sickness was. So Jenny, you're getting it now. Um, kind of the same, same thing. It's, it's a big deal. Um, so, so yeah. So RC health solutions has a, summer EMT program. So she did it this summer and then she'll be finished when she goes to college. So it's kind of cool. So you guys uh, enjoy your senior year. It's super fun, big time. I remember that. Uh, And if I can ever help you out in any way or you have any questions, I I can still remember back a little bit. My brain isn't too dimensioned up yet. So please, you guys have my contact. Don't hesitate to contact me. And I'm really glad you had an awesome, uh, awesome time at, at MCHD. Hopefully your last shift has some good stuff. Of course. Thank you so much. All right, guys. You You have a good night. Thank you all. You too. Good night.
Thank you so much for listening to the 10th episode of Stories Behind the Scrubs. If you haven't already listened to the last episode with NASA astronaut Johnny Kim, set some time aside to check that out. If you look forward to hearing our next podcast, click the subscribe button and be sure to follow our Instagram at Stories Behind the Scrubs.